0: Hey folks, I'm Dan Dworkis and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performing at our best when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest today is Matthew Lavoie. He is a critical care physician assistant and an assistant professor at Bryant University Physician Assistant Program, where he coordinates the delivery of simulated patient encounters and instruction clinical skills and procedures, specifically in emergency medicine and critical care. Now, prior to that, he served in the Army and the Army National Guard for 26 years, including putting in time as a medic, a PA, a military medic instructor, and a paratrooper with the 82nd Airborne Division. Sir, thank you so much for joining. It is awesome to have you. We were riffing on a bunch of stuff before the camera turned on, and I'm just like, I'm psyched to have this conversation. So welcome to the podcast.
1: Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the great introduction. And uh, yeah, I look forward to doing this. I listen to the podcast regularly. I think that there's so much cross-training opportunity between all the different, really, jobs that you've brought into this uh, podcast and offers a perspective for individuals inside and outside of medicine on how these types of teams, relationships can be built. Happy to be here and thanks for uh, the invitation.
0: So why don't we go back in time and start a little bit. So you trained... If I'm getting this right, first as a medic and then as a PA in the army, is that right?
1: Yeah, so I joined the military, the army when I, in 1998 when I was 17. I had my initial basic training. I went to medical training, then I went to airborne school, and then at which time I was placed in the 82nd Airborne Division as a paratrooper medic and worked there on active duty for four years, uh, came off active duty, joined the National Guard. Did my undergrad in chemistry with a medical focus, then spent some more time on active duty, preparing soldiers to deploy in medical skills for deployments. In that time frame, without the, there was really a fast operational tempo for deployments in the mid early two thousands um, when there was we were basically just rolling uh, individuals through medical training and then shipping them overseas after that. Wrapped up, I went to Civilian Physician Assistant School at Mass College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, at which point I graduated and uh, shortly after, a little bit of uh, long-term care and then went into hospital medicine and critical care. After that, very quickly became interested in physician assistant education and began to do um, lectures, adjunct faculty, coordinating some simulation courses and Ultimately, within the last year, came on full time as a assistant professor.
0: Interesting and varied career with all of the different mental models that you must have seen from the ones you inherited and were instilled with in the military to working in those different areas to now turning around on the other side and, and teaching folks from varied backgrounds as well. I think one of the things we're going to riff on a little bit today is the idea of how to teach emergency thinking and emergency skill sets in a variety of universes. One of the things we do on this podcast a lot is we talk with folks where most of their job in one way or another is crisis. But there's also much larger than that swath of the universe where their job is not necessarily crisis, but they sometimes have to act like it is anyway. This is a really gross oversimplification, but sometimes I sort of break it down in my mind as like crisis native groups that exist only where the crisis is, crisis adjacent groups that are sort of half and half, and then like normal where occasionally you have to do a thing that's a crisis, but most of the time that's not what you're doing. And it strikes me that you're an awesome person to talk to about that because you've been teaching groups that live in multiple of those camps for a long time. So maybe again, going backwards slightly, when you first learned this, right, so you're 17 or maybe you're 18 at this point, you're in the military and you're starting your medical training. What was that like? What was the models that you were getting and how did you start thinking about that stuff at that point?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I um, I always enjoyed the sciences and I liked that background in high school. And then immediately following high school, I left, went to the traditional basic training. And then after basic training was my my medical training, at the time a 10-week intensive training uh, Eight, nine, 10 hours a day, Mm -hmm. five, six days a week training program. A lot of it for lack of a civilian counterpart is emergency medical technician, Mm -hmm. but also the trauma aspect of managing critically ill trauma patients in a field environment. And that was the, the framework of the education. And very quickly afterwards, I was surprised how quickly I was becoming the subject matter expert among the people around me. And so I was assigned to infantry line companies in training with parachute operations. You have injuries and certainly multiple people, mass casualties that in some instances, depending on the, how sure. uh, the airborne operation was conducted, even in training and people with 20, 30 years in the military coming to me with my two and three years in the military and saying, okay, what do we need to do to save this guy? Like, do we fly him out? Do we evacuate him by ground? And it was very humbling and very quickly I had to figure it out. Did you self-select into the medic path?
0: Was that sort of what you had signed up to do?
1: Yeah, so actually a friend of mine when I was in high school was uh, interested in and in, we were both science. We like science and, we, you know, we were interested in medicine to a degree. And he had ended up selecting medic right from initial entry. And so I had to, you take a exam for the military and then I scored high enough. And if you score within a, a certain amount, you can select from a certain number of jobs. And so mm-hmm. I qualified to be a medic and was able to. Then select before I even left high school. Um, I actually signed up when I was 16, left when I was 17, and was able to select for the medic track right out of high school.
0: Had you been exposed to anything medical as a kid? Did you know what you were getting into in some sense? I mean, it's really hard, I would say, for any 16 or 17 year old to really know what they're getting into in just about anything, thinking mostly of myself at that age. But like the arc I'm going to eventually draw with this, right, is how do we start instilling the tenets of emergency thinking in folks early in their lives and early in their careers. You know, the sort of one-two punch, hopefully, of that is these thoughts are like, well, were you ready for it? Were you uniquely ready for it? Or was there something that helped you start learning those tenets from the beginning?
1: Sure. So I, I always liked the sciences. I took like anatomy and physiology in high school. No formal real exposure to any type of, you know, my parents aren't in the medical field and... um you know, it was something I knew I liked science. And basically, I, at the time, thought that I was probably not quite ready to go to uh, go to college or university and um, needed a little bit of maturing to be a success in that. And, And so I opted to do the military route, do active duty. And I was then able to obviously get through all that. And I feel like no matter what, Acuity level, level of medical education you have, whether it be a physician assistant, doc, a nurse practitioner, the first time you're involved in one of these situations, um, whether mm. it be in training or even it, it's a little different, as you know, for when you are the student, you're involved in it, but you're not calling the shots. And then the first time that you are supervising whoever it may be, um, a resident or an intern, and now you have moved from your role as being supervised to supervising someone else and you're making the actual decisions rather than having someone else make the decision for you and tell you what to do, okay, Mm -hmm. now this patient's sick enough, we're going to intubate this patient versus I have to make the call and say, okay, now we need to intubate. And sometimes the intubation decision can be more difficult than the procedure itself, depending on the patient. So I don't know if that really answers your question, but that's kind of. Yeah.
0: No. So it, it sounds like you loved the building blocks. You loved science you wanted a chance to grow and prove yourself and develop. And this was a logical sort of movement of that path and a great opportunity to learn a lot of these things. So you're learning the stuff, you're going through your 10-week program, you're starting to work with patients and manage casualties and do this on your own. And then at some point, you started teaching folks that were behind you in that pipeline, right? What was the training for that like? How did you get inducted as a teacher?
1: So on the military side, I didn't have a ton of formal educational experience. I was a medic, which was one of the criteria. And then they do have a total army instructor trainer program, which is a very short, less than a week crash course in how to conduct a educational experience in the military. Mm -hmm. But ultimately it was really just, hey, are you interested in doing this? And I said, yeah, I think I'd be interested in doing that. And initially in my training, it was much later where I was actually training medics. So to your point about training these skills, the lay soldier who's not a formal medic needs to be trained to some degree in emergency treatment of trauma wounds. Mm -hmm. And getting involved in teaching those courses is where I spent a lot of my early time in education working with getting way soldiers trained up to perform these few individual tasks that are deemed most likely to save a life in the event that they have this type of an injury that they need to treat.
0: Can we press on that for a little bit? What's an example of that, that you might, a skill that you might be teaching somebody who, you know, they want to be a heavy machine gunner. They're not interested in being a medic they're, or they're a mechanic they, or whatever. They, they're not interested in being a medic. But they understand that to serve the greater needs of the community, in this case, basically the military, that they have to know some medical skills and that those skills, when they are called upon to use them, it's not going to be in an outpatient doctor's office. It's going to be in a place where it's intense, there's damage in blood, and there's you know adrenaline and a lot of things going on. So they're basic skills, writ large, done correctly in adverse circumstances. Well, what's an example of that and how do you teach that?
1: Yeah, so I think so. One of the skills, for example, would be applying a tourniquet. They need to be able to do it on one of their other fellow soldiers or military members. And also they need to be able to do it on themselves. Mm-hmm. And so that is probably the most basic task that is part of this. That's something they learn even if they don't take this basic advanced medical. So there's there's things that every soldier needs to know whether or not they have this additional identifier. As what's called a combat lifesaver. So they've been through a three day course that is above and beyond their traditional blanket training as a soldier. And they take this course, and now it's transitioned and called uh, tactical combat casualty care. Mm -hmm. And it's transitioned. Yep. And it's transitioned to that program. But depending on the command, not every single soldier may receive that. They may require within a group of a a squad of nine individuals, two or three of them TCCC certified. And so some of those like applying a tourniquet well, and it's something that they are likely going to do infrequently, but have to be really good at and Mm -hmm. being able to boil that down to a task in which they feel comfortable doing infrequently or never, but they can still do it. What are
0: the ways in which you accomplish that? And this can be a tourniquet or anything, but like, so you have a skill, you need to be able to do it. How do you train that?
1: So I think you start like a lot of it, crawl, walk, run, or like you you start with, here's the basics of a tourniquet. Here's how to do it. Take your time, put it on somebody else's arm and see how it goes. And I think you get to start with the the basics and then layer on, okay, now we're interested in you doing it for speed. Mm -hmm. And we need you to put this tourniquet on within 30 seconds, for example. And then being able to repetitively train that basic skill over and over again, so that it's almost muscle memory, like to down to what pocket it's stored in. Mm -hmm. For example, let's say a command chooses, they're going to do the right shoulder pocket or the left cargo pocket so that every individual in the unit knows that if somebody's injured, they go to that pocket to retrieve their, the individual's tourniquet, because you want to use the individual's tourniquet first, which is another skill that you teach them. You don't use your own unless you have to and then how to apply it and how to quickly apply it. And there's the initial training. And then over the course of time, reinforcing those skills where, okay, we're going to take 15 minutes, we're going to do a quick little training, and we're going to practice putting on the tourniquets and make sure that you know where they're located and you know how to put them on it and reinforcing those skills over time longitudinally in order to continue proficiency so that when it comes time that they had to use it, it, it may be a little Clunky, for lack of a better word, but they'll still do it. They still feel comfortable enough to do it because, with like basic life support, they've found that individuals, even that have been trained to do it, may not do it because they don't feel comfortable enough in their own ability to perform it. And kind of breaking down that wall and making sure that they both are comfortable with it, learning it, knowing how to do it, doing it over time, repetitively, longitudinally, and then actually feeling confident enough to do it. In the event that they need to do it, whether it's put on a tourniquet, maybe another skill, needle chest decompression, intubation, those types of things. And the difficult part is from the whatever training and whatever reinforcement to the, if there's a long duration between the time in which they learn the skill to the time in which they perform the skill, they may not do it at all because they don't feel comfortable or do it incorrectly to the detriment of the soldier or the individual they're trying to save. Are you
0: adding stress in at any of these points?
1: So, like yeah, Other so than the stress of the clock. Yeah. R- right. So, what we say to our, the, the individuals we're training is we don't want to know what it's like for you to do this in a classroom. Yeah, we're starting in a classroom and you, you build your confidence and then within reason simulation. And so, they'll run through a lane in which they may be put, applying a tourniquet, starting an IV And there could be mud, they might have to low crawl under barbed wire, they might have a fire hose blasting on them. And we don't want to know what it's like for them to perform a procedure in perfect conditions. Mm -hmm. We then want to make sure that they can perform that procedure under trained or simulated duress so that in the event that they actually have to do it, they're still, it's almost, they're back to muscle memory. They're just doing it on autopilot and it's not something that requires... A ton of thought, more just, I know how to do this. I'm going to, this is what I need to do. Execute it, complete the task correctly, and move on.
0: So, we're getting back to this model of applying graduated pressure, right? Where we're learning a skill and we're ramping the pressure up. We're very aware of when there's a step function in pressure, right? Between nothing and something and then something and a lot of something. And we're trying to smooth that curve in there. And even still, like you're hitting on, there might be time there might be distance, there might be large uh, differences between how we train and how we're actually deploying that skill later on in life. And those frequent reminders are, I think, a really key piece of that, right? Like we know that you have to get recertified in BLS or ACLS every two years, right? PALS is about the same frequency. Interestingly, ATLS, the civilian trauma care for ER doctors is like once, I'm not sure what to say about that. I don't know the I don't know the logic of the science behind that. Maybe at some point we'll have somebody on who is one of the folks that built that to begin with. but skill decay is a real thing, right And you're right that there are times when you could run into a situation where somebody who might theoretically know how to do something doesn't want to deploy that skill or doesn't feel safe deploying that skill in these kind of an environment, which is obviously what we want to avoid, right We want the maximum number of people possible to have this baseline skill set. I would imagine that there's also a component in there in this baseline skill package of who and what to call for help. Is that right? Like when to escalate, when to bring in like advanced resources?
1: Sure. And I think that the conditions dictate that to a degree where similarly in the ED, uh, if you're having a mass casualty or multiple codes coming in at the same time, typically the attending position would be Present if there was a single code and there was a, the ED was kind of rolling along and there was nothing else critically going on, but then there's that opportunity where multiple people come in. So ideally, they, and I think this, uh, this may be some of the work of Tulka is that ideally you'd want the best person in the world at critical care and emergency medicine to run your code, every single person, but that's just not feasible and no one's going to learn anything that you're never going to be able to pass that along unless you're training somebody else to do, to be excellent. To be proficient at that role,
0: I haven't thought about that sentence in a while, and I actually—I'm not sure I agree with that. I think I'd probably want the most skilled team, but not necessarily the most skilled individual. Sure. Right? I, I think like was I was reading the other day about—I forget if it was the HRQ or something—but they were talking about some of the regulations for hospitals around designing code blue care, and they had this sentence which happened to have in front of me here that was really useful. Would, Because cardiac arrest occurs relatively infrequently, yet requires the highest level of skill and coordination to manage, right? And that was our logic behind something, right? I thought it was really elegant. It occurs infrequently and also requires the highest level of skill and training to manage as a group, right? So I think I want the best group, not necessarily the best person.
1: That boils down to the, I agree, the the team, the best team to do it. But and if they, certainly if they're teaching, then that could they would mm-hmm. be building confidence in in their the individuals that they're precepting. But the case is that we need to be able to learn how to teach these skills to other people and, and to have them also become proficient. And there's always going to be individuals, and teams that are better at one thing than another. There's a saying in the military that uh, you don't go to war with the army that you want; you go with the army that you got. And so training those teams to be able to be successful in doing the, whatever the skill be, maybe responding to a rapid response or a cold code blue or uh, something like that would be a thing like you talk about swarm teams and how Mm -hmm. it could be difficult. You don't always know who you're working with. There's some interchangeability of the roles and every single role has people who are outstanding and every single role has people who may be underperforming and, you need to work with the team that you have.
0: So actually, so maybe this is a good opportunity to transition slightly, because we've been talking a lot about sort of how you instill basic skills in a military universe. And now let's jump over to the other part of the world that you spend a lot of time in, which is the civilian medical space, specifically around PA education and, and training folks to be like truly excellent physician assistants. So What are some of the differences in thought patterns you see between the groups that, if any, between the groups that you're training there, right? Between somebody who's coming in to get basic TCCC or somebody who's coming in as a PA. Pretend for the sake of argument here, neither one of these people want to go into emergency full-time.
1: Sure. Yeah. So the military individuals have had some component of graduated pressure, as you would already, whether, even though it's not specific for medicine, Mm -hmm. they're comfortable being uncomfortable in most cases. And so they oftentimes with individuals without a type of trauma background, emergency medicine, a large breadth of exposure to emergency department tech, you need to graduate the level of difficulty. And, and when I say difficulty, I don't mean like the didactic difficulty. I mean the situational difficulty of The patient may not be critically ill, but they may be very angry and be yelling at you. And how do you respond to that? And so kind of working on developing more of like, so like a five component where it's like a birth is like you're arriving at either PA school, medical school, whatever your initial training is. And then we're moving into a thrall and then we're moving into a walk and then like a jog and then a run. Because if you try and put the run at the beginning or the walk at the beginning, the individuals seem to not be able to handle that very well because they're now, pressure is too great initially. And and again, I'm talking about the situational pressure of they're not ready to run codes yet, but their patient is giving them a hard time or something like that. And being able to over time develop that comfortable being uncomfortable in a level of situational uh, adversity that they may not have been exposed to. And to kind of piggyback on that, we find that over the last two or three years, there's Mm -hmm. been due to COVID in part and possibly social media, there seems to be a deterioration of face-to-face interaction with other human beings, whether it be even in a situation where the student for the first time is going in front of their peers to evaluate a patient in a small group in front of the faculty with no pressure. Mm -hmm. Sometimes just that interaction seems to be something we now need to work more to train. Whereas before it seemingly, before COVID and before uh, people were locked in their basements for years on end, they were at least had the ability to interact between individuals face-to-face in an environment, a work environment, whatever the case might be, where a lot of people just switched to Zoom and many jobs lended to that. And they, students who are matriculating now, we're still, now we're kind of getting through like they've spent, and for mm-hmm. me, it was like the benchmark, but where did you spend your undergrad? If the last two years of your undergrad were remote, yeah. I think that you're going to require an additional component of instruction when you're working in your small groups, when you're presenting to faculty before we even consider we graduated stress and our yeah. sure. that.
0: No, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. We have folks that are coming in and they want to be an amazing PA. Maybe they don't know what flavor of PA they want to be at, but they know they want to be a PA. And they are starting to get some of the pressure that we all face in medicine. I think this is true, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but for most of them, they're not going to go on to careers where crisis is the majority of what they do. Yeah, that is, that's accurate.
1: Yeah, that's correct. Really, for PA's hospital medicine to a point, critical care and emergency medicine, it's mm-hmm. infrequent that they would, that would be all they are doing that sure. they are doing, that they're managing patients in an ICU setting, and it's there's somebody coding every day. Like so right. That's unlikely to be the case. Even really any hospital, that's not usually the case unless it's a very large institution. I have certainly personally worked side-by-side with
0: PAs in emergency departments. When I was a resident, I worked with them in intensive care units and in outpatient settings. And Amazing folks doing damn good work and like extending their skills, extending my skills, and making the team better for their presence on it. But for a lot of them, they're not going to be in that crisis native group. They're going to maybe be crisis adjacent, or maybe they're going to be third bucket to be named later, probably normal, right? Where they're working in, a, in an office and occasionally there's a crisis that comes up, but rarely. So, how do you teach those folks to think in emergency situations? they don't necessarily want it. It's not necessarily what they signed up for. There's not the underlying structure of the military where they realize that there's threat around them. You're sort of eliminating a layer of that, which is why I wanted to talk about the military role first. So how do you do it? How do you teach them that?
1: So they obviously go through a didactic program of emergency medicine. And then in simulation, they begin to have opportunities to be a team member and a team leader in whatever the clinical scenario may be. So towards the they, they have to build the groundwork of their medical knowledge before they can move on to doing running codes, that, that type of thing. One of the things that we we're doing earlier is introducing ACLS earlier and reinforcing it more frequently throughout the didactic year, more with cardiology at the beginning rather than we we're doing with emergency medicine at the sure. end. And that way we can have that level of complexity with their patients throughout the entire term. And then it's putting them in the situation in simulation and making sure that they have an opportunity to lead their team, but also to be a team member. And so they rotate through groups of six and one of the individuals at each occurrence of the it would be the lead and then everybody else would be the team member and they'd be responsible with assigning simulated roles where, okay, mm-hmm. student one, you're gonna be respiratory therapy, student two, you're sure. gonna be accessing and work through them with that. And then certainly they complete an emergency medicine rotation in which they're exposed to varying degrees of emergency medicine and really critical care and coding and, and, mm-hmm. and those types of events. And it can be challenging for some individuals who have difficulty under those stressful situations to train that piece. And their initial training is one thing, but then if it, how do you reinforce like that skill or that, we'll call it ACLS or intubation, over time, or it may be something that they're not doing very frequently, but maybe the only individual who has formal training to complete that task if they're on call or whatever the case may be.
0: I actually think it's worth taking a slight step back because I really don't even mean like intubating, right? Like, like intubating is a really fascinating whole sub-discussion. We're honestly even running a code, right? But I'm talking about you have somebody that shows up to You're a PA in dermatology or you're a PA in oncology or whatever. Somebody shows up to your office and, like, oh, geez. And they, like, you give them a medicine and they become anaphylactic. Right. And it's that kind of a thing where all of a sudden you were in one universe and now you're in another. Right. And it's less about the skill maintenance of performing a task and more about switching your mind into crisis mode or. I guess I should probably call this the emergency mind for continuity of what I'm doing. But you know, you switch your mind into crisis mode and then you have to act in a very different way with different sets of things. Like the recognition, the alteration of behavior, the tactics it takes to do that. How do you train that? Because to me, that's in some ways harder than the skill set of like recognizing a rhythm on a strip and deciding whether or not to shock it. It's
1: challenging, and what I try to assure them is that by the time they've gotten through and they they have the knowledge and they have the capability to react even at the the basic level. So even if what what I encourage them is that your basic life support. but before you even do that, getting your mind in the right mind frame to switch roles from I'm treating, contact dermatitis to now I am coding a patient that is in cardiac arrest and get your mind right take that second to reset your mind and to settle your mind for the, the emergency mind and everybody says just don't panic but how do you not panic if you're if this is a situation that you're, you're never in everyone's like oh just don't panic but really uh, okay this, yeah <laughs> Take a second to get your mind wrapped around it and know that you have what it takes to do basic life support. And then what we talked about, I think maybe before was, is that the confidence to execute it, even though you may not feel like you've, you may, it may have been 23 months since your last basic life support refresher, but know that you have the knowledge and that you can apply it. And then to go ahead and, and to do so. To save
0: that patient. What kind of after action reviews of M&Ms or hot washes or stuff like that are, are you all teaching the team there in terms of coming back from an event like this and sharing those stories with each other and reflecting on what that felt like and, and what that transition was like?
1: Sure. So we talk a lot, of, they'll perform the encounter. Some of it may be the instructors behind one-way glass, the instructor may be in the room. And then afterwards, debrief the medicine piece. Well, 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 it could have been done differently. What medications were given? What medications weren't given? How do we change that piece? But then also, how did you feel when that happened? Feel unprepared. Did you feel, and what one of the, the, the skills a colleague of mine uses is dry erase boards around the room. And how did you feel during this time? And then go write a word on the board. then people put a star if they agree with that, or if they have a new word that they want to incorporate, they'll put that on the board and we'll then go through and say, okay, so some of you felt overwhelmed. Tell me more about that. Tell me what specifically did you feel unprepared, nervous, panicked? How do we kind of drill down into exactly how you were feeling and were you able to set your mind correctly? Do you feel like it affected your performance? And then work with them to understand them what mindset you bring. It's going to impact how well you perform under pressure.
0: Absolutely. I think you mentioned this before we turned the cameras on, but you were saying that the place that you're working or one of the places that you worked, there's no physician coverage overnight. And so you're looking at an ICU that's run by the team of PAs and that these are the folks who are called upon to do the codes, to do the intubations, to do the, the central lines and to really rescue the patient in the middle of the night like that. How do you set people up for success with that?
1: So I think that it is being able to, one thing is confidence and that even if it's simulated initially, like you may not feel confident, but I tell people that the attitude that you bring as a team leader, whatever role that may be, into the situation, in this this instance, a code, you're going to set the tone for everybody in the room. And if you... Well, no matter what you have to do, if it's an intubation, chest compressions, you're starting a central line and you're going to set that tone. And so if you come in and I try and be even more relaxed than I normally would be and say, "Okay," to your book and to some of your podcasts about, well, this isn't optimal, but here is what I would like to do. I plan on intubating this patient and maybe they're in respiratory arrest, but they're not in cardiac arrest. And I'll say, if I have the time, I'll say, here are the meds I would like to use for induction. Respiratory therapy, could you please be ready to go in a tracheal tube? And working with them to figure out, and it's a bit of an internal struggle, is that while internally I may be very concerned about whether or not I'm going to be able to intubate this Mm -hmm, patient, mm -hmm. I know that the team as a whole will suffer if I outwardly display my oh my God! This I might have to crank this patient. I'm never going to be able to get this patient intubated if I say all of those things. Everybody, they're all going to be elevated and they're not going to uh, perform optimally. But if right. I'm cool, calm, and collected, as we like to say in the military, is in you are going to be delivering yourself to the situation and throughout the situation better than if you were very worried, concerned, um, panicky. Yeah,
0: obviously I I agree with that and and I love the way that the way thinking about that, how do I deliver myself to the situation in the best way that I can? You get that metaphor of the duck, right? You're calm on top, even if you're paddling like hell underneath. And there's some interesting sort of side branches here about when is the right time to discuss uncertainty or imperfection, right? Because I think like leaders saying things like, I think this is what's happening. Who sees something I don't is actually a really powerful technique. But there's a difference between that and like, I don't see anything. I don't need any of these sort of... Well, like one of those wacky inflatable car sales things, right? That's what I sure. don't want to bring to that situation. I am certainly better at that now than I was at the beginning of my training and even than I was at the beginning of my ER training. And I'm concerned about how to share that piece with folks who aren't crisis native in their work. Concerned is the wrong word. I think it is a challenge, mm-hmm. right? Because I think the more times you find yourself in the dirt, metaphorically or actually, the better able you are to operate in the dirt. And part of that is sim. And part of that is though repeated exposures to it and realizing, okay, I survived this. I'm going to survive that, right? Here's what I'm going to build. Here's what I'm going to build. But for folks who get a little bit of training and then two, five, 10 years later, find themselves in one of those moments. That's a long time to ask for skills to stay sharp, right? That's a long time to ask for the ability to switch gears to still be there. I don't know that there's an answer to that, but I think that's worth exploring and thinking through. What comes to mind for you on that?
1: When you and I were talking about this topic, I I kind of thought about some instances, and it wasn't really in um, medicine. I was a deputy commander of a mass vaccination site. And we were trying to work on operations and proficiency and how do we improve day after day to get even better than we were the day before. Mm-hmm. And I think eventually you end up at a, a critical mass where, OK, we're going to really drill into step three. Maybe it's the, the, how do we deliver the vaccine at the point of injection more efficiently and how do we get the patient queued up more quickly? That goes great. But then something else is now not being managed to the same degree and is is starting. So you're moving around point of failure or the point, your rate-limiting step. You're moving that around. And I think it's challenging in medicine for these types of situations to determine how often should we be training this at the detriment of what they're actually doing. There's that dichotomy that, okay, we're going to make them really good at running a code. Mm -hmm. But now they are less proficient in, let's say, family medicine because they've spent all their time learning how to do something that they are going to do very infrequently.
0: You're describing me, right? And the other people that are ER doctors, right? We are an excellent at this one tool. We're an instrument tuned to this key that does not make us really good at family medicine or oncology or other, like we can make it work, but it's not the same thing and you're right there's a cost benefit analysis that goes into that interestingly similar to what you were saying at the very beginning about like how many people out of 9 people do you need to know how to really do something super well in order to actually cover it and it's not everybody although i'd argue like basically every person in the country should know cpr and how to put a tourniquet on right like that's like everybody should know that and the stop the bleed campaign sort of stuff but beyond that i think it's an open question how much energy and time do you devote
1: to training crisis if your job is not crisis to your point, like with basic life support is that even if everybody is trained by the time they get exposed to the situation, are they going to feel comfortable executing that low occurrence skill you are even attempting it? And so when I am teaching basic life support, I say, when in doubt, if you do nothing else, push hard and fast in the center of the chest, Absolutely. boil it down, make it like, this is all, if you do nothing else, just do this. And then build on that. And that's some of the things that I work with the more senior medical individuals that I'm either instructing school or in the hospital is that get really good at the basic things first. Then we're going to layer on complexity because the basic things, BLS, right. you can always back, is always your backup. And so people talk about, let's put in a central line. Let's get this patient intubated well. Are you using an airway adjunct? Are, the, are you getting good bag mask ventilation? Are you using two rescuer Ventilation, if that's available to you, Mm. are we really providing the best basic life support? And maybe that's why they're desaturating. Maybe we can buy them some more time and and really training. Like, what's your fallback? Are you going to do the basic thing really well and then layer on the complexity? And then for some people, the basic thing in an instance like you described may only be basic life support, but know that first step is call 911. I'm going to start CPR. We're going to do the best we can. And get other Absolutely. individuals with higher level of training on, on site.
0: Yeah. Allow the team to assemble. Use the seconds to buy minutes to let the team assemble. I think that's a very sure. a noble and worthwhile way to attack it. All right. We're coming to the end of the podcast road here. And before we sign off, I want to just give you a chance, if there's any challenge you want to issue to anybody listening to this, stuff you want them to do differently on Monday or on their next shift, what do you want them to try?
1: One thing is trying it incrementally better at whatever it is you're doing in medicine or otherwise every day. How can I get So if I get 1% better, if I change my azimuth, my direction on my compass by 1%, Mm -hmm. tomorrow I'm not going to be in much of a different place. But a year from now, it's going to have a drastic implication on where my end state is based on those small modifications. And then one thing I tell my students, which is somewhat applicable to people in an emergency medicine setting or an urgent care setting is in medicine, don't cherry pick your patients and then hmm. don't cherry pick your projects. So if you always take a patient with abdominal pain and you're the abdominal pain expert inside and out what to do and make the diagnosis, you're never if that's all you do and you choose that. Like, And let's say there's a four year old with a, an earache in the queue. If you want to get better, try to train those. If you have the opportunity, go take the four year old with the earache. And you might not have any kids. and You might be terrified. For my students, I say, don't cherry pick your patients. You're going to learn a lot from the other patients that you might not feel comfortable with, but get comfortable being uncomfortable and figuring out ways to put yourself in those situations so you can perform better in any situation that makes you uncomfortable. Awesome. Well,
0: listen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, for sharing your knowledge and your experience with all
1: of us. Deeply appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Dan. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely.
0: So I'll sign off by saying thank you for listening to the Emergency Mind Podcast, Once again, our job here is to learn the best from what we've all figured out about how to apply knowledge under pressure, never to provide medical advice, and anything I or my guests say are our own opinions, not those of the folks and teams that we work for or with. And with that, good luck out there.